JBFD Studios is the Jade Motel Football Experience. And now here's your host, Jake Botel. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, welcome to another episode of the Jake Botel Football Experience. We're getting weird straight off the very tippity top of the episode. Hope you're all well. Hope you're all doing absolutely splendidly just discovered that my cat was asleep in my recording studio, which I don't know if you can hear like the cattle in the background. I live on rurally, let's put it that way, um, in the middle of nowhere in Australia. And uh, sometimes the studio can feel more like um, a menagerie of animal sounds, most of which aren't coming from me. Um, so if you hear a bell, that'll be my cat. Um, better take care of some uh, episodic uh, controversy uh, based around the last episode of the JBFE, if you were listening, I gave a, a massive shout out to the, the um, astronaut listeners in the audience. Uh, and, you know, obviously that upset the deep sea uh, oceanauts of the JBFE listenership. Um, perhaps felt that my my commendation on the uh, work of the astronauts. I don't know, put their own work to shame or something, but I'm here to tell the, the any, any oceanaut listeners, I guess I could go as simply as calling them exploratory divers or something, but that might seem a little condescending. Um, you know, if you're, so if you're listening to this episode from the bottom of the ocean, um, you know, which there's as much vastness perhaps of the ocean that we haven't explored. You know, the work you're doing is just as important, deep sea explorators, as the people who are building bases on the dark side of the moon. Believe me, the secret bases that you're helping to build uh, in the deepest depths of the ocean, in the trench, that's just as important, and the JBFE salutes you. So anyway, just thought I'd get that cleared up off the top, um, the sort of uh, aquatic explorator uh, anger at how uh, lavishly I'd heaped praise on their galactic brothers and sisters. So we've got that out of the way off the top. Uh, Welcome in to the Inner Sanctum of the JBFE. If it's your first time listening, well done for making it through the first four minutes and 17 seconds without switching it off. You have clearly found uh, one of your own 
if you're weird enough to be listening through the first four and a half minutes of this podcast, I think you'll listen to the next 45 minutes. Welcome. If you're a long-time listener, please pull up a pew. What are we going to talk about today? Football. That's what we're going to talk about. The greatest topic there is to talk about is football. And off the top, I'm just going to say I've been trying to make a point of reading. Um, I used to be a big reader when I was a kid. It was like one of my great passions. Um, as soon as I could read, I would just like consume books, not literally, um, but you know, figuratively, figuratively, metaphorically, figuratively, whatever it is. I, I would read uh, at just a ravenous rate. And then, don't know, I like sort of continued that as a teenager, and then, don't know, just became an an adult, I guess, and went away from the practice somewhat. But I'm trying to uh, bring reading back into my life because I feel like it exercises a different part of my brain, um, keeps me mentally healthy uh, in some ways that you know, video games and TV shows and that sort of thing just can't quite compete with. So I've been reading, um, keeping it within the football sphere. So I've started reading The Blind Side, and I, I had one attempt already to read The Blind Side, and uh, the fact that I didn't finish it the first time around was not to do with the quality of the book, but rather to do just with, I think, that classic thing of, as I was saying, trying to build the habit. I, I'm just so out of the habit with reading books cover to cover. Um so I'm getting back in. I was like, no, I want to do this again. I was so long story short of that is I finished Collision Low Crosses maybe a couple of months ago, a month and a half ago, and I was like, that's awesome. I could read that again. It was such a good book. I was just going to go back to the start, and I thought, one sec, there's about seven or eight football books that I've got sitting on my shelf that I've never read. Why don't I crack into one of those ones that I haven't actually read yet, and uh, you know, delight myself with the with the story. Uh, held within. And so I've cracked into the blind side and just as good as I remember it being, uh, I think I'm about three chapters in, sort of just starting to dig into the uh, the backstory of Michael Orr. Um, but sizzling opening chapter, um, Michael Lewis, the author, um, who wrote The Blind Side, also responsible for, um, as I blank entirely on the other book, Moneyball. Also wrote Moneyball, another book that I have, <laughs> another one of the three books that I've read since turning 21, um, in the year, in the decade, uh, since turning 21, um, Moneyball sensational book, and it too has just like just some amazing um, parts in it. And the opening chapter of Moneyball is that uh, Moneyball Blindside. The opening chapter of Blindside is that just dives into Joe Theismann's career-ending injury at the hands of Lawrence Taylor, weaving that in with sort of an analysis of why and how the left tackle position, the blindside position became to be such a, a well-paid and crucial part 
of the football landscape. It's Michael Lewis does this great thing. I could be wrong. It's happened once or twice before that I've been wrong. Um, but Michael Lewis, I believe, comes from some sort of like economical background almost. Like I, I know he's, he also is responsible for writing The Big Short and a bunch of other books as well. But to me, what his writing captures, and I feel like he does, he gets this in Moneyball and he gets this in The Big Short. Ah, The Blind Side, good Lord. My head is just all over the spot. Um, <laughs> um, so what he does really well is weave, paint these broad narratives about trends within, within an economy. So the economy of football, and that's not just a financial one, but the economy of, you know, different resources within that industry. It's the same in baseball, you know, Moneyball is talk, uh, it's talking about the economy of the baseball um, ecosystem, I guess, you know, how everything's set up and the value of certain players and the value of certain um, statistics or, or, or more intangible commodities. So he weaves these sort of broad stories about the trends and the patterns and the rhythms and cycles of these enormous institutions, you know, the baseball industry or the, 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 you know, the global financial system, or in this case, pro football. He paints those pictures and then he weaves in this really human element. Like Moneyball is a great example of that, where you're getting this sort of broad story about the you know, the, the, the nature of competitive balance or the lack thereof um, in MLB. But you sort of get this great insight with, uh, you know, the character of Billy Bean, I guess, having been a guy that was, you know, ultimately comes out the other side of pro baseball, you know, a brief pro baseball career, feeling like he's been put through feeling like he was kind of screwed over, I guess, by the traditional scouting community and and then trying to find a way in some ways to disprove their methods, you know, and then, and then sort of, you know, adopting this Moneyball type scheme. But he's got very personal reasons, not just about the success of the Oakland A's. It's really, there's a, there's a personal journey there. And I feel like that's what Blindside does so well. It weaves in these smaller personal narratives into the bigger landscape. And so you get, you know, this story, these stories happening on multiple levels. And it's, it's just, I don't know, I just think he's a sensational writer. Um, if you haven't read Moneyball, highly recommend it. And the first three chapters of Blindside, I have thoroughly enjoyed. Really thoroughly enjoyed. It's interesting because um, in the opening couple of chapters... Um, it's at Briarcrest Christian School. And um, Hugh Freeze is the coach at that time at the high school level of, of the football program. Uh, and it's just sort of funny now that, you know, he's very much in the spotlight, I guess, for what he's done at Liberty um, after all the drama at Ole Miss uh, when he was there. But, you know, so, so it's sort of, it's, there's a lot of familiar faces, I guess.
in that story. So yeah, I've been reading. Tell me where that was going, but I filled you in there. That's part of the Jake Botel football experience. I've been reading, really enjoying it, and hopefully smash through another chapter of that tonight. Uh, but yeah, definitely recommend. Can recommend Moneyball, can recommend The Blind Side based on the first three chapters, can recommend Collisions Low Crosses, which I think I make a recommendation for everyone to read uh, at least once every 45 minutes of podcast content on uh, the JBFE. Also, if you're a Steelers fan or or more broadly a fan of the history of pro football, there's a book called The Ones Who Hit the Hardest. Can't remember the author's names off the top of my head. Um, that was really cool. Again, talk about weaving different levels of story into a book. Sort of tells the, the birth of pro football alongside the sort of two main parts of the story are the birth of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cowboys and sort of their rivalry that they developed through the 70s, um, playing against each other in multiple Super Bowls. Uh, really good book. Also talks about the, the history of industry in Pittsburgh um, and a lot of sort of the unionization, uh, you know, sort of the battle for unionization and all that sort of thing. It's really cool. Really good book. Okay, what else did I want to talk about today? NFL Week 14. It's sort of like a week ago now. It sort of feels like it's very much in the rearview mirror. Some interesting results. I think the Steelers, from from a from a fan's point of view, you know, as a Steelers fan, you know, that offense looks suspiciously cooked. Um, that would be my one big takeaway. The, the comparison I've started to make in my head is that this Steelers defense, which, by the way, broke the record uh, for most consecutive games with a sack. They're currently the, uh, the leaders in history with 70. 70 games in a row with a sack. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, just an amazing accomplishment, and they are an amazing defense to watch. Even, and I mean, consider what the Steelers are missing. Never mind the, the troubles they've had on the offensive line um, with injury there, but then in the defense, no Devin Bush, who was a standout last season in his rookie year and was playing well this year. No Devin Bush. They've lost Bud Dupree a game or two ago, um, and they're still putting up, you know, really good numbers. Rory Spillane got injured as well. Like they've they've had backups come in and the backups get injured. So the comparison that comes to mind for me is that, to me, this Steelers' defense is feels eerily destined to suffer the same fate that the uh, the sort of late seventies, early eighties, San Diego Chargers offense suffered, and that was, you know, being such a historically good um, team on one side of the ball, but destined to ultimately fall short of winning a Super Bowl because of the mediocrity on the other side of the ball. Which I know sounds harsh, but if you've listened, if you're a if you're a frequent listener, if you're a frequent flyer on the JBF, you will know going back to the early days of this season that I had concerns about the Steelers offense, specifically the run game. But I think it's more it, it, it's broader than that. Um, there's a lot of you know I've noticed the Steelers fan base is particularly negative 
sometimes, and, and a lot of it directed at Mike Tomlin. You know, sack Tomlin seems to happen after every loss, uh, even after you know close wins. Sometimes people have that sort of feedback. But you know, what you can't. I mean, I I personally am a massive Mike Tomlin fan, and I have no issue with the way he runs the team. To be perfectly honest with you. Um, but um, I think it can't be overlooked. One, the run game. Yes, the run game is a massive issue. And people say, well, whoa, why can't James Conner do this? Why can't James Conner do that? Why can't, you know, well, there's O-line injuries or whatever. You know, why don't they run the ball more? I think that part of this that doesn't get discussed enough is the fact that Roethlisberger can't throw the ball deep anymore. Now, some people say, well, yeah, there's been long touchdowns. Yeah, maybe a few. But you can't tell me that there's been a consistent deep ball threat there for the Steelers across the season. In in sporadic moments, particularly early in the season, it's something that's receded um, across the season. And, and I think that's a big part of it. It's easy for us to sit here and say, well, why isn't the run game any good? Well, you've also got to be able to threaten in the passing game. As soon as people realize that you can't throw downfield, it starts to get pretty easy. Well, if there's no threat that they're going to beat us over the top, we can sort of play, you know, up a little, one, to guard the run, and also to, to take those quick, short, sharp, passes out of the equation. Like, I don't think that the Steelers' offense is particularly difficult to defend against. Because, you know, it lacks a deep passing dynamic. So, I don't know. You know, it's a bit chicken chicken and the egg. Is there not a deep ball threat because the run game isn't good? Or is their run game not good because there's not a deep ball threat and teams aren't worried about you know, getting up to the line and stopping the run because they don't really worry about being beaten downfield. I just feel like that's an element we... No one likes to talk about. And Steelers fans are super, super protective of, of Big Ben, from my experience anyway. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being realistic. Uh, about where your quarterback's at. And the reality is Ben has maybe one more season in him. You know, unless this season is somewhat of an anomaly, you know, like what we're seeing is him, you know, still recovering from that injury from last season. Maybe the arm's not back to where it should be. But, I mean, it's a long time since that happened. Who knows? Maybe he comes out in 2021 and plays differently. But if this is the Ben you've got, like, without a running game, this just isn't going to work. And as I said, perhaps at least some portion of the blame could be put on the passing game. There's nothing deep. So I'm kind of at this point where I love watching the Steelers' defense. The offense is just frustrating. Um, and I think we're going to probably fritter away a Super Bowl-level defense. A historically good defense. Um, in terms of cooking up pressure, 
like getting pressure to the quarterback. I don't think there's that many defenses in NFL history that have cooked up as much pressure as Pittsburgh has the last two years. Last season when they had Duck Hodges and Mason Rudolph, and then this year, like they're just ballistic. It is so fun to watch. And the offense is just not much. So, look, I don't know. Maybe they find a way to pull it together. But at this point, I'm enjoying the ride. <laughs> Let's get out of talking about the Steelers because I'm just going to... Um, it sounds like I'm going to go down a, 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 a spiral of depression here as I talk about... Pittsburgh's offensive woes. What else did I take away? Well, from that same game, the Steelers and the Bills. Um, talk about a deep ball threat. Josh Allen, my goodness, that dude has an arm. Um, I think they look for real, the Bills. It's pretty remarkable when you think about this This Buffalo team. I had a look at this the other day. They Buffalo had had two winning seasons. From, yeah, from the year 2000 to the end of the 2016 season, they had had just two winning seasons. And in four years under Sean McDermott, they've had three. And assuming they make it to the playoffs this year, which I believe they may have already even locked in, um, that'll be three trips in four years to the playoffs too. That's pretty remarkable. That's an amazing turnaround. Uh, and... You know, what's scary about the Bills is this offense. I mean, they're an offense that I think could stand to to probably improve their run game just, just a little. If they could get another 15% uh, productivity out of the run, uh, I think they'd be really they'd be really dangerous. They'd be up there for me with Kansas City because they've got a lot of ways that they can beat you. They might have one of the top two or three receiving groups in all of football. Stephon Diggs, John Brown, Cole Beasley, um, Gabriel Davis as well. They've just got a lot of ways um, that they can skin the cat, I guess. And the scary thing is, well, I shouldn't say that while my cat's in the room. You might think that's a bit insensitive. Um, so... You know, there's a lot of ways they can get you. Not to mention, like, Josh Allen is just an absolute destroyer in the red zone. But then there's upside to come on this defense. That's something that's been shaky this year at times, is their defense. But it, it feels like they're really starting to find a rhythm. So if those things come together, this, this is a really dangerous team. And... You know, the Bills are a team I love to follow. I really love Sean McDermott's whole approach. Uh, if you want to get some sort of behind-the-scenes looks at the Buffalo Bills, go back and watch. Um, I believe there's a 2018 and a 2019 um, Buffalo Bills Embedded, it's called. They did like their own sort of YouTube Hard Knocks series. I think they're about 20, 25-minute episodes. Um, I think there was maybe six for each season, 2018 and 2019. I don't think they did one this year. Um, but it's kind of, yeah, you get you get an insight, a, a behind-the-scenes look at how McDermott's building that program. Um, 
with Brandon Bean, the general manager. It's it's really I love those um, behind the scenes shows that the teams produce. The Jets do one Jets drive. There's building the Browns. Uh, the Steelers actually have one this season. The the Standard, which has been good. As a Steelers fan, you don't always get that much behind the scenes uh, information. You don't really get that hard knocks look behind, look under the curtain sort of thing. But um, yeah, the standard was is pretty good. I think they've had four or five episodes of that this season, and I think that's ongoing. I think they'll have another episode of that out before the end of the year. So that's cool. Yeah, I just like those. I like those behind the scenes documentary sort of series follow the teams but yeah Bills Embedded is a good one if you want to get a little bit of insight into Sean McDermott and the process there that they're installing at the Bills so I think this yeah I think this Bills team is really dangerous and I think they have um, I think they have a quarterback advantage over the Miami Dolphins so the Dolphins are the other team in that AFC East that's you know on the rise you know as the Patriots begin to maybe come back to the pack I'm always loath to write them off. I don't think they're going to make playoffs this season or anything, but you know, you just don't know what happens after another draft class or something, you know, what Belichick might be able to cook up, but it feels like the Bills and the Dolphins are going to be the two powers in that division. And I feel like the Bills have the quarterback advantage. I feel like Josh Allen is a bigger difference maker than Tua. Could be wrong. Just feel like the ceiling for what he can do is so much higher. The floor is also lower. Um, but I just, yeah, if you said I can have Tua or I can have Josh Allen for the next, you know, five to ten years, I would pick Josh Allen. But it'd be close. It'd be pretty close. So the Bills look the goods. Um, actually, just in terms of just capping off, up, actually, I'll get to Jalen Hurts and the Eagles upsetting the New Orleans Saints, and you know, like I know we're this this week fourteen is so you know feels so far in the rearview mirror, but I just wanted to sort of reflect a bit on Jalen Hurts. Um, you know, his decision making looked sharp against the Saints. I thought he he was processing things pretty well. And his speed, like, yeah, the decision to... This is something I feel, and it was, you know, brilliantly on display against Taysom Hill. It's something I've kind of felt critical about Taysom Hill of is just make a decision. Throw it or tuck it and run. Too often I feel like, you know, he's getting caught. It's almost like sometimes you think, as Taysom Hill, you're standing in the pocket going, everyone thinks I can't throw. Everyone thinks I can't throw. Everyone just thinks I'm a running quarterback. I've got to stay in the pocket and throw. I've got to stay in the pocket and throw. And I'm sacked. You know, like, it's like... He's such an interesting runner. He's such an interesting athlete to have at quarterback. Like, it's been surprising to me. The throwing kind of... That, that's been here nor there. It's been about what I thought it might be. Got some upside. It's also got some downside. But what's kind of shocked me more is the, his decision-making in terms of when to maybe just tuck it and trust his athleticism. I've really been surprised at even the lack of creativity with that Saints offense. 
felt like they, they looked more creative when they had Teddy Bridgewater last season. It's, it's kind of been a shocker to me. I thought, oh, wow, you know, Taysom Hill in the Sean Payton offense, like, what's that going to look like? And it kind of just looks a little bit meh at the minute. And now whether that's just on Hill in his execution, don't know. Maybe it's on Sean Payton and the, the game plan that they've cooked up where they're keeping things really simple. But I don't know. I just feel like I thought, I guess I thought they'd be even running more like option plays, you know, with Kamara. Being able to have two guys, you know, on the on the field at the same time, in Kamara and Hill. I just I don't know. I thought they'd just get a bit more creative with it. I thought they would be harder to defend. But there's so many times where where Taysom Hill's just getting st- sort of stuck, lead footed in the pocket, and just can't escape, and just gets mowed down. And a few too many examples of like seeing a receiver going to throw, oh, I don't know if I can, and then bang, I'm sacked. The decision-making for me hasn't been that quick. And it's not saying he can't get there. It just looks like there's something holding it back at the minute. And, you know, we never have a full picture of what's going on behind the scenes in regards to how things are unfolding at training and in planning and all that sort of stuff. So that's just observations from, from watching from afar. But I thought it was put in stark contrast uh, with what Jalen Hurts did coming in. Made really quick decisions, and that was the, the the you know the feedback was, oh well you know, Jalen Hurts he almost pulled them back in you know in their previous game, but once he goes up against the Saints' defense, wow you know that's going to be the end of it. And you know he goes out and basically pulls together a performance of more like what I thought we'd see from Taysom Hill. They made it really hard for the Saints to defend against them by utilizing their quarterback's athleticism. And I thought he made some nice throws, and I thought he made decisions effectively. I'm not saying he made great decisions every time, but he made decisions. And a lot of them were good. He made them, you know, he made timely decisions. And a lot of his decisions led to, you know, good results for his team. There's not many teams that, uh, not many players that come in and, you know, not only throw for, you know, I can't remember what his yardage throwing was off the top of my head, but uh, I think it was in excess of 150. Who knows? He might have actually gone over 200. I can't remember. Um, but I know he also rushed for 100 yards or, you know, just over 100. So suddenly that Eagles offense looks transformed. And that was a massive knock. Like, I loved watching Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma. I went back uh, prior to the NFL draft and pretty much watched every game from Oklahoma's 2019 season, and it was just fun. He's a fun dude to watch. Um, there's a few guys, actually, in that Oklahoma 2019 that was fun to watch. Kenneth Murray on defense, um, also a standout. But, you know, a big knock on Jalen Hurts was his decision-making, was his processing. You know, would he be able to, you know, read things quick as quickly as he would need to in the NFL? 
Was he coddled at Oklahoma, you know, in, in Lincoln Riley's system? Was he only hitting open receivers? And who knows? Maybe some of that that's true. But it's like we... It's like we think guys in their early 20s aren't going to make any step up once they step into the professional environment. Like what? How many other industries do we think, well, you've got to step out of college as the ready-made project, uh, uh, you know, piece. You've got to come straight out of college and be ready to be the top of your profession in year one in the professional environment. Not that many if any. So, you know, and the idea that we don't give people time to learn. Like, you know, an investment banker, you know, so, you know an, an economist leaves college. When they get their first job, do we maybe expect that they might require further years, you know, years actually practicing in the industry? to learn skills off their peers and mentors. Yeah, we do. Like, you know, it's just like, what, why would we think that college guys who are only in their early 20s wouldn't continue to evolve? That's what I don't get. And Jalen Hurts has already shown how much he can evolve from his time in Alabama to his time at Oklahoma, like he seemed like a dude who was willing to learn. He seemed like a professional. He seemed like a professional. He was professional. And it's the same thing you notice about Joe Burrow. You know, he went to LSU because he wanted to continue trying to develop his craft. I don't know. There's just something about some players that you watch and you go, that dude is willing to learn. That guy is willing to do what it takes. And I don't know, maybe that's just kooky, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I just sort of go, why don't we think these guys are going to develop? And who knows? Jalen Hurts might fall in a hole now. Who knows? But, the, the you know, the consensus was, oh, well, Hurts is going to, it's going to be a bust. He's slow, you know, with his decision-making. He's slow, you know, reading the field. <sighs> I don't know. And it's funny, those those athletic quarterbacks too, you know, dual-threat guys, they can actually do two things. It's interesting to think about the criticisms that, you know, you know, sort of like classic pocket passing guys face. It's, it's, you don't often hear it said of those guys, well, you know what? He didn't run for 80 yards today. He didn't really get out of the pocket and uh, run for a lot of first downs with his legs. So maybe he's a bust. And I know that, you know, their success is predicated on being able to complete, you know, 30 of 40 passes and throw for 400 yards and all that sort of thing. I get it. It's different. But it just frustrates me when people think that guys aren't going to develop, that when they leave college, they're done. Look at Patrick Mahomes. He didn't get drafted as the finished product. He sat a year behind Alex Smith and learned from a professional. And then he's come out... And perhaps had the most dominant start 
by a player to their career at any position. So why do we think Jalen Hurts isn't good enough to learn? Why don't we think he's eager enough to learn? I don't know. I've I've liked the cut of the guy's jib um, through college. Like how many other how many other players when they you know were basically told, "Well, you're not going to be the starter in 2018. Two is our starter. You're going to play backup." A lot of guys would have hit the transfer portal. He didn't. He stayed through. He stuck out the 2018 season. Actually came in and helped them win a playoff game. Then he transferred to Oklahoma. I like Jalen Hurts and I hope he's really successful. You know what? And for what it's worth, I'm also still a... Not a Carson Wentz apologist, but I remember watching his 2017 season and we forget how good he was. And I think a change of scenery could do him the world of good. Who knows? Maybe it's not fixable, but but again, he's a pretty young dude. Maybe there's scope there to continue to develop professionally. I want to see him in Indianapolis with Frank Reich. I think Phil Rivers will play one more season with the Colts. Carson Wentz will be behind him as a backup. And then Wentz assumes the starting role in 2022 or something. I don't know. I'd like that matchup. Doesn't seem like a coincidence to me that Frank Reich was there the year he was having his, you know, what would have been, if he had finished that season, he would have won the MVP in 2017. The only reason Tom Brady won it was because, you know, the injury to Wentz. Wentz was on track for an MVP. Anyway, let's move on to uh, other topics. I'm excited to see Jalen Hurts again this weekend, even though I dropped him from my fantasy team. (laughs) I've got Russell Wilson and Ryan Tannehill, so it's like, how much space can I, you know, how much can I really do? I can't have, I don't have room for three quarterbacks. Um, so I also watched the Browns-Ravens game. I must have got through about eight games uh, from NFL Week 8. I'm just going to talk about the stuff that comes to me. Browns-Ravens was one of the games of the year. I think Baker Mayfield um, is really starting to show what he can do. It's a shame that one of the, the big things we'll remember from that game is that interception he threw. Uh, which was crucial in the game, really, the context of the game. It was, you know, that one sort of big turnover that they really couldn't afford. But he also did some amazing stuff too. I think the Browns are for real. I think the Ravens are going to be dangerous. You know, they've sort of regrouped after a bit of a mid-season slump, and I think they're going to be dangerous down the stretch. Lamar Jackson, as much as I'm a Steelers fan, you know, Lamar Jackson is a formidable opponent. And, you know, I think if I'm being honest, I feel like if they had have had him in the second game instead of uh, Robert Griffin third, I think they would have beaten us the second time around. I think we beat him fair and square the first time, but I think they would have had our number in the second game in that delayed matchup. Lamar Jackson's going to be good. 
uh, for a long time, but he's going to be frustrating to a lot of people. <sighs> yeah, we could have a whole rant about why it's frustrating that people can't appreciate, um, you know, different types of quarterbacks, I guess. Is Lamar the best thrower in the league? No. Is he top five? No. Is he top 10? Probably not. He might be like middle of the pack in the NFL. Might even be lower than middle. If I ranked it, you know, as, as, a, as a just pure, just evaluating them on throwing, you know, Lamar might be down in that sort of 20 to 25 range. I don't know if I've really thought that's an interesting... I'm going to do that. As an exercise, I'm going to do that. I'm going to rank the the NFL QBs. And why don't we make it fair? Like, while I'm talking about, like, oh, well, we can't enjoy... You know, people don't appreciate the, the different skill sets of quarterbacks. Maybe I'll rank the throwing, like the passing element, all 32 starters, and then I'll rank the athleticism. Huh. That'd be an interesting one. I reckon I'll do that. So, yeah, it's it's just frustrating to me, I guess. Yeah, Lamar might not be a top half of the league thrower, but man, there are a few players in the NFL that can move like him and pick up yardage like him with his legs. Good Lord. He is just... And you know, another thing I love is just his, his attitude, his competitiveness. A, a perfect Ravens quarterback, I think. Love it. Just wants to win. And I know that sounds like really sim- simpleton analysis, but, you know, bite me. Um, <laughs> Want to tra- uh, quickly transition into some college football. Today's just been like a rambling JBFE. I hope you like these ones. I hope you... Um, like, sometimes these episodes are more like structured and homogenous than others. Sometimes I just like to sit down in a room and just talk with you. You know, I kind of wish that all of you guys who are listening, um, that, you know, you could all be in a room in a, or a Zoom chat or whatever, or, you know, knocking back a beer at one of our fantastic, you know, pubs here in Australia, in a, you know, in the beer garden outside, catching the last sort of rays of sun on one of our nice summer days, cicadas going crazy, and we could just be talking football. That's what I try and do with these episodes is just just yak some football at you without, you know, I've got maybe half a dozen notes of what I wanted to talk about for this episode. And I'm just letting the letting the spirit move me. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy them. Um, if not, I mean, there's plenty of other good football podcasts out there. <laughs> um but yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, some college football. LSU, baby. Let's uh, let's first get out of the way of the fact that the Louisiana Ragin' Cajuns, another one of my college football romances, um, have have just this afternoon had their Sunbelt Conference Championship game cancelled because um, Coastal Carolina had some COVID issues that have pretty much you know, sidelined a whole position group for them. It sucks. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk on Twitter from uh, Chanticleer. I think that's what 
people say it's not Chanticleer, it's Chanticleer. Chanticleer, um, I remember trying to guess what the heck a Chanticleer was, and I thought it was some sort of like marauding um, pirate, you know, like a Chanticleer. Maybe I was thinking sea shanties or something. I don't know. But I didn't think that it was like a rooster that ruled the roost. Um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of Twitter frenzy about, oh, well, the, you know, Coastal Carolina was undefeated. They beat the Cajuns. They should be declared outright conference champions because they've, they've declared it as a co-championship between the Cajuns and Coastal Carolina. And I get that reasoning. If I was a Coastal Carolina fan, I might feel that way too. But what I would point out to the Coastal Carolina fans is that in the ACC, between Clemson and Notre Dame, if Notre Dame gets COVID cases, that means it can't play the game. It's treated like a forfeit and Clemson wins the conference championship, despite the fact that Notre Dame beat them in the regular season. As a Steelers fan who's been on the wrong end of a bunch of reschedulings and postponements and things, it kind of pisses me off a little bit um, that, you know, through no fault of their own now, the Cajuns don't get the opportunity to prove themselves. That kind of annoys me. So, look, I think ultimately the fairest thing, all things being considered, is to declare a co-championship, but... You know, I don't know. It's not a very satisfying conclusion of the season. Uh, but I will re-watch for years the Cajuns defeating Iowa State, currently ranked sixth in the nation, uh, 31 to 14. So that will long be a memory. And I think Billy Napier's going to keep doing special things uh, at the Cajuns before he, you know, goes and takes over some massive monolith of a program elsewhere. But I think until that happens... I mean, if Ed Algeron ever was on the outs at LSU, it would be such a logical progression to just put Billy Napier in at LSU. Just upgrade in-state. Um, speaking of LSU, delicious. Absolutely Delicious. Capital D, delicious victory over the Florida Gators on the weekend. <laughs> oh, man. Like, going from the season they had last year, LSU going undefeated and winning the national championship and Joe Burrow winning the Heisman Trophy, smacking Clemson in the championship game, all those things, the great wins along the way, the victory over Alabama, the victory in Texas. You know, it's just a whole season of LSU and specifically like Joe Burrow calling their shot and then knocking it out of the park. There's been a lot of Twitter frenzy about that too this season. Oh, well, clearly they weren't as good as they thought they were. <laughs> LSU still crap. Uh, take the same amount of talent that LSU lost, like take the equivalent amount of talent that departed LSU in the offseason out of any other team in college football, 
and you try and win a back-to-back national championship. That was going to be hard whether the, that group stayed together or not. To lose all that was going to be, you know, that much harder. So, I don't know, it just felt nice to uh, spit in the eye of the haters and knock off Florida. Spit in the eye of the gators. Uh, spit in the eye of the haters by smashing the gators. Uh, it wasn't really a smashing. It was, you know, tooth and nail. But, you know, first start by a freshman quarterback. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. And, you know, I, I thought... Um, Max Johnson showed some stuff too. Lefty quarterback. Um, God, I hope he's a lefty. <laughs> How drunk was I when I watched the game? Um, no, I wasn't drunk at all because I watched them on a Sunday morning at about 8am. So absolutely was dry as a desert, ladies and gentlemen. Um, he showed some stuff, I thought. A willingness to run, some nice throws. I'll be watching that game again because who the hell wouldn't? Just, it's awesome when your team plays as an underdog and beats someone. It's fantastic. And they rested Michael Pitt, uh, not Michael Pittman, Kyle Pitts? Michael Pitts. Pitts. Whatever his name is, their tight end. Um, Florida, I think I'm getting him mixed up with a guy that's at the Colts. I'm pretty sure Michael Pittman is at the Colts. Kyle Pitts is at the Gators and is transcendent tight end style um, player. I'm going to look that up because that's going to bug me. Nothing worse than being wrong about a football fact, even though it happens to me all the time. And... You know, this is what I mean, guys. We've all got room for improvement. This is a teachable moment. Teachable moment. Everyone gather around while I Google whether it's Kyle Pitts or my... It was Kyle Pitts. Um, that's the that's the uh, short of it. It was Kyle Pitts, an American football tight end for the Florida Gators, who was, suited, uh, who was not suited up on the sideline. Sorry, son. Catch you later. LSU. A beacher. Because Dan Mullen and the Florida Gators treated the LSU game like a bye. Because they were looking ahead to the championship game against LSU, uh, against Alabama. That was just me wish casting. The championship game against Alabama is what I was referring to. So, go Tigers. Go Tigers can't get sick of that. Go Tigers! That's that's going to be an endearing memory. Might just cut that that clip, my Ed Ogeron impression, and loop it in with the JBFE intro, which David Vaughan kindly put together. The great Oklahoman himself. Alright, pull it together for the, for, the, for the finish here. Jake, pull it together. It's starting to get a little bit loose. Starting to get a little bit loose. So LSU, they're going to have to be my my rooting interest um, for college football this weekend because my Cajuns won't be playing. 
I'll be following the Tigers when they take on the Ole Miss Rebels, who, you know, sneaky bad spot for LSU here. Ole Miss coming in, looking to just fire pistols and put up points. LSU on the big, you know, letdown spot after a massive win over a, you know, a rival in an upset game. Uh... Yeah. So, not super confident, but I'll watch because it's their last game of the season because they've self-imposed a bowl game ban. Other games to keep your eyes on. Iowa State and Oklahoma Sooners. The real question is, does any team outside the top five actually have a chance? Even outside the top four. The reality is this is a weird season. I think if Ohio State lost, that spot could open. But I'm actually not convinced that if Clemson loses, they're out. If there's any year where... And um, Cover 3 podcast, if you're looking for a specifically dedicated college football podcast, the Cover 3 podcast, Barton Simmons, Tom Finelli, uh Chip Patterson, Danny Cannell, good podcast. Um, Tom Fonelli has been saying this all season long. If ever there was a year where, um, you know, the committee is just going to pick the four teams they want, not necessarily the four teams that are most deserving, it's a COVID year. Let's just get the four most recognizable big name brands into the college football semifinal and rake in what dollars we can. And I'm kind of inclined to agree that that's going to be the, the, the logic of it. To me, I don't think... It's such a hard one. Like, Texas A&M, I kind of go... I feel like it's important to have the championship game. You know? Like, A&M can't make a conference championship game. And so they can't have a shot at a title. And I just find it hard when you've got a team that, you know, seven and one or eight and one, and they haven't, I don't know. It's such a, I guess it's an arbitrary kind of thing, but it's also why we should do away with divisions in college football. Because Texas A&M essentially got knocked out of playoff contention the week they lost to Alabama because they could never get over Alabama again because they can't make the conference championship. They had to rely on Alabama losing two games in order to leapfrog them. And now we've got a two-loss Florida across the division in the other division that Alabama's going to go up against. Like the, the, The game should be... Alabama versus Texas A&M. They're the two best teams in the conference. The ACC gets this. Imagine if we had a situation where, uh, say that Clemson and Notre Dame are on the one side, of the, one side of the conference in one division together this year, and then you had Miami in the other. Clemson and Notre Dame can't play off in the conference championship because Miami has to be the other team. They were smart and did away with divisions. The Big 12 doesn't have divisions. So you get the best two teams. The Pac-12 is just a hot mess. Like, what have we got? What's the, is the championship game Oregon versus USC? 2-2 two and two Oregon, is it? Or 3-2? and 2-2? Two? Two and two? Get rid of the divisions, particularly in the COVID season. 
we should have had A&M versus Alabama. <sighs> Very frustrating. Because not over is, only is Florida a two-loss team. They also lost to A&M. Anyway, I digress. I'm looking forward to college football weekend. Can't wait to watch the, the, the Tigers. Go Tigers! Um, looking forward to the NFL. And I'll just wrap up with a quick shout-out. Really exciting bunch of Aussies have been signing uh, like local gridiron players, as we call it here, gridiron, because we already have football here, the Australian kind. But yeah, American football does have not only a following here, but some local leagues and that sort of thing. And it's, it's, it's growing all the time in popularity. And it's been really exciting to see some guys... Um, from Monash Warriors down in Melbourne, from the Brisbane Rhinos up in Queensland, signing um, to go and play college football over in America next season. Um, Kennesaw State, Kent State, and Fordham. And what's really exciting is these guys aren't punters. They are defensive linemen. You know, that's exciting to me. That's where I want to get to with Australia in regards to American football, where we're exporting players at all positions. And I think in the next 10 years, when we've got kids who have grown up playing the game, who aren't walking into the whole setup, you know, for the first time when they go overseas, you know, guys who understand how to learn a playbook and, you know, how to line up in proper techniques and they understand, you know, the, the schematics of the game. That's a really exciting time for football here in Australia because I think we're going to start exporting some serious talent. So massive congratulations to those guys. would love to have them on the show. Maybe I'll have to reach out. Another project to write down on my list. Anyway, guys, thanks for sticking around for this episode of the JBFE. I'll be back soon. We'll do that episode with the rankings of quarterbacks ranked by passing ability and athletic like running ability, scrambling ability. We'll do that. But until next time, you guys have been great. I've been reasonable. It's the JBFE. Thanks so much for listening, especially if you're listening from the bottom of the ocean, working on developing a secret aquatic base. We salute you. for joining us on the Jake Botel Football Experience. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at Jake Botel Football Experience and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, we invite you to support the JBFE on Patreon and you'll receive additional exclusive bonus content. Thank you again for joining us at the JBFE.